I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. So tonight, I'm your host, Will Krebs, and I'm joined in the studio by Jim. Jim. Jordan. And Jordan. And Dr. Clark. Uh, Dr. Clark, I believe you're a Florida historian, correct? I am indeed. So tell us, what came first, uh, Florida or history? History. I loved history since high school and then got into Florida when I was working on my master's degree at Stetson University as an adult. Uh, I never, like most Floridians, I just wasn't aware of Florida's history. And so I found out how rich it was and how little known it was. So yeah. how did you become a professor at, at UCF? A history well, professor? I uh, got my master's at Stetson and then went on for my doctorate at uh, Florida. And uh, I had been a journalist for three decades and in 1999, made the transition to uh, to the faculty at UCF. Gotcha. So you're, you uh, earlier, earlier you mentioned that you've always loved history, and and I didn't realize that teaching was a second career. But you, in learning, you have some kids that are naturally gifted in things like mathematics or history. But I'm sorry, not history, mathematics or science or even English. But history requires an intent to learn it. At least I believe it does. But can, well, uh, can a student be naturally gifted at history? Yes, and and I think I was. That's why God knows it wasn't science or math. Um, and so it's it's strange to watch students in my classes um, who can, you know, master mathematical formulas that I don't have any idea what they are, and yet. Can't remember who uh, Warren G. Harding was. You know, to me, that's that's pretty simple. Uh, or people who are studying to be doctors and can, you know, name all these things. Uh, and as chemistry, people who can recite the element chart. Uh, to me, that's the hard part. I think history is easy. <laughs> but I'm sure they think history is hard and their thing is easy. I've always been a big fan of history because I felt like it was easier to remember what happened in the past than it was to try and figure out and predict the future with math and science yeah. and everything else. <laughs> and those that uh, don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it. Absolutely, his history yes. has such such a like a story to it. Where you know it's not it's not something that you have to necessarily. I don't want to say it's something you have to necessarily memorize because you still memorize it. But it, I don't know. I feel like it just sucks you in because there's just so much to it. A lot of links. Yeah. So you well, I think there's always something that people like. Um, you know, some people will come to me and when I teach World War One, let's say, and you can see the students, their eyes light up and they have questions and all of a sudden they talk and then I move on and I never hear from them again. So there are people who are fascinated uh, there's a student in one of my classes this semester who uh, collects World War II occupation currency. 
you know, issued by Japan in countries it conquered, issued by Germany, you know, in co- countries it conquered. So you find people interested in these little slivers of, of history. That's awesome. So you've written at least 10 books. The first one being Fate of Glory was about the presidents and after their time in office. But the next nine are about Florida or Floridians. How did Florida yeah. become a subject of career? Well, I, um, you know, I, I grew up in Washington, D.C. I was fascinated by politics and I had seen some, not, I don't mean, I mean to imply we knew one another. I was a kid, but you know, you would see former presidents, you know, you'd see uh, uh, Herbert Hoover uh, in Washington, you would, you would see uh, Harry Truman. And so a lot of these politicians came back to Washington. And so I was fascinated and, and wrote the book. Uh, And then subsequent to that, I became fascinated with Florida, and uh, kind of fell into it. Uh, when I was studying for my master's degree, when you say you'd see you'd see presidents in Washington D.C. after their time, you mean like you'd be at the diner having breakfast and Herbert Hoover'd wander in, or, or no, 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 uh, you would see uh, limousines suddenly speeding by. You would, uh, you know, and you'd you'd hurry. Uh, a lot of the presidents. I lived in an area uh, called Bethesda Chevy Chase where uh, Navy Medical is, which is the president's hospital. And so you'd see these limousines coming by and you'd run or ride your bike over to to Navy Medical and it would be Harry Truman coming in for a checkup or Herbert Hoover coming in for a checkup, things or Eisenhower, in fact, coming in for a checkup. So, you know, you'd see him getting out of the car and in the car. It was very exciting. Yeah, I imagine it would be. So kind of kind of moving into the Florida subject. When when you're when we're kids and when you're starting to learn about Florida, we learn that Ponce de Leon is the gentleman who kind of showed up and discovered Florida first. Um well certainly there was a bunch of indigenous people that were here prior to the European arrival, but um in in one of your works you mentioned that there's a likelihood that there were Europeans that made landfall in Florida before Ponce de Leon did. Can you chat a little bit about who those folks might have been, what what they were doing, why they came here, and maybe why some of their exploits made it a little tougher on the folks that followed? Yeah. Uh, first of all, John Cabot, the who was exploring for England, uh, pretty clearly came down to Florida. In fact, there's a map w- which we would call upside down where Florida is kind of at the top. Um, and uh, uh, he clearly came down here. Uh, and remember, Havana was only uh, 90 miles from Key West. And it's pretty clear that especially the indigenous tribes moved back and forth and, and communicated among one another so that when uh, the Spanish, quote, discovered Florida, it was pretty well known. Um, in fact, uh, uh, the uh, Quesa Indians who were in the, what's now the Miami area, um, the whole tribe picked up and moved to Cuba at one point. Uh, so people knew the area, knew what was happening. So uh, we want to give all the credit to uh, Ponce, but clearly people had been here before and 
I have the, uh, the I patented this, the Jim Clark Indian Reaction Scale. If a European explorer lands and the Indians are friendly, they've never encountered a European. If they start, <laughs> if they start killing the Spanish or the French or the British, it means they've encountered the Europeans before and don't want to encounter them again. So, um, so when uh, you know uh, Ponce returns, uh, what a dozen years later, and tries to settle Southwest Florida, uh, Charlotte Harbor, he is greeted by warring Indians who kill him and much of his party. Uh, they obviously they had encountered. Europeans before, and it was not a pleasant experience. Yeah, so either the, either people came out of Cuba and the other islands and things that were, were, were attempting to acquire slaves or, or whatever. They had some sort of interaction, or their neighbors had did an interaction that warned everybody when those fellows with the funny hats show up, <laughs> stop them at the beach or it's going to get ugly. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. And, and they had perfected it, you know, uh, we believe that Ponce was killed by a uh, poison arrow. Uh, he died uh, a, a short time after, uh, but he lingered from what was not a particularly serious arrow wound, but clearly had something on it that uh, killed him. You got any ideas to what the indigenous people would use to, to, to infect an arrow like that? I think a mixture of uh, berries and things they found. They had, they had figured this out. Um, and, you know, there were thousands of Indians. You know, I think most of us in my generation got the impression there were, you know, a scattered Indian tribes along the East Coast. You know, uh, Indian tribe here, Indian tribe there. And we now know that there were perhaps millions of Indians in North America when the Spanish arrived. And just in Florida, there were seven different tribes spread out throughout the state. Yeah, I don't see why. You know, you're you're right. All all throughout school, we learn about the Seminole Indian tribe and maybe the Osceola some, but you you don't. Why wouldn't there be many many tribes in the state of Florida? We have mild winters at that time. I'm sure there was plenty of plenty game was plentiful. Um. You have a, a very long growing season. It's it's just it 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 reeks of what should be inhabitable land. Yes, exactly. And remember, in many ways, Florida is the youngest state. Uh, people don't realize of the forty eight states, actually of the fifty states, Florida is the last geographic area created as the ice ages ended. Um, North America ended kind of at Georgia at one point. And so Florida, which is, you know, kind of on limestone and other things, um, comes last. And of course, the Indian tribes were coming across the, the Bering Strait uh, over to what's now Alaska so they came to Florida last. Remember, they had to walk basically from Alaska to Florida. And so they had already populated the West and the North and everywhere else before they got here. 
when do you, how long do you think it took um, for the indigenous tribes? No, let me correct that. Forget how long it took me to get here. When, when do you believe indigenous peoples first moved into Florida? How long? How oh, long several thousand years ago. We have the uh, great remains over in uh, Brevard County that archaeologists have been working on. Um, uh, the South Florida tribe, the cases that were at least 2,000 years ago. Um, the uh, uh, So it was thousands of years ago that they first came uh, compared to 500 years ago that the Spanish arrived. You know, you talk about how Florida is the youngest state. It seems like every time we have someone on here from the USDA Forest Service out of the Ocala National Forest, they always seem to mention that the house, the, the big scrub in the Ocala National Forest used to be an island. It's the high point in our area. And at one point when Florida was underwater, that was was out of the water like the Keys much are today. And that's the reason the landscape there is the way it is. And it's very interesting to, that you brought that up. But... So the, the Seminole Nation was a, a relative latecomer to Florida. What brought the Seminoles to Florida and, and what happened to the original indigenous tribes? Uh, the indigenous tribes, the original ones, either move like the cases to uh, Cuba or somewhere else. They get wiped out by smallpox. They get wiped out in battles. Uh, you know, just the same things happening to Indians all over North and South America. Um and so by the 1700s, they are, for all intents and purposes, gone. And the Seminoles, along with the Creeks, uh, come in late, uh, 1600s, 1700s, along in there, settling kind of in North Florida uh, originally, uh, and then uh, increasingly becoming a problem for the United States. Uh, they would strike across the border into Georgia, uh, commit crimes, and then come back to Spanish Florida and safety. So um, this, that's one of the reasons the United States fights three wars with the Seminole Nation. Did they come to Florida after the first encounter with Andrew Jackson with uh... – he was up in Alabama with uh, Red Red Stick. Was that the? the yeah, no, no, they're already here. Oh, they're and it's uh, Red Stick. I believe was part of the Creek Nation, and and they were all intertwined. Uh, the Creek Nation, the the Seminoles, and uh, escaped slaves from the United States, uh, so-called Black Seminoles, who came and assimilated with the. Uh, with the Seminoles and fought with them. I'm going to jump back a little bit. I got a question. Earlier, we were talking about early early Spanish explorers, and we talked. And everybody seems to be familiar with Ponce de Leon and later on Hernando de Soto. Um, but very few people are aware of an ill-fated mission from I think it's Pen, Penfilio. I can't pronounce the name right. Penfilo or Penfilio? Penfilio. Yep, Dinavares, uh, around 1528. What happened to those poor fellows? Uh, this is an amazing uh, expedition, and uh, uh, he comes, he gets separated uh, from his ships. Originally, we think there are about 600 people. They stop in Cuba. A number of uh, 
people just say, hey, I don't want to go on. I'm going to stay here in Cuba. They run into a hurricane. Everything that can go wrong does go wrong. They decide, the remaining people decide uh, to head for the panhandle. And now there are about 200 left. And they build rafts. And uh, they were huge rafts. Uh, when you think of a raft, you think of, you know, Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> these, these, these rafts held 50 people each. Wow. And so they set sail for Mexico and... Uh, only one raft made it. The other three, we have no idea what happened. The Indians capture them. So of the 600 um, who started out, only four survive. And they walk from, I guess, present day, say, Pensacola to Mexico City and are enslaved along the way, escape. Uh, all these things, and uh, finally reached Mexico City. And when he writes his memoirs, uh, he, he is, ver first of all, sympathetic to the Indians, um, which most Spanish were not. But he also provides the real first glimpse of inside North America. His geography is terrible. and our, Mine would be, too. Yours would be, too. You know, you're wandering around uh you know, Texas, you have no idea where you are. Um, and so a lot of the geography in his memoirs is wrong. But basically, uh, he's, uh, you know, really provides the first glimpse uh, of what uh, the world is like in North America. I think the person you're referring to now, that's uh, Alvar Nunez uh, Cabeza de Vaca, right? The gentleman that he and his cohorts got shipwrecked somewhere in Florida and they walk, they're the people that walked all the way to, to Mexico city. Correct. Yes. Got it. Okay. There was, there was one other gentleman, I think survived the expedition. I don't think he was part of that. Uh, Juan Ortiz, who, as I understand when Hernando de Soto arrived 11 years later, uh, Juan Ortiz was, was, was living with indigenous people here and he had been part of the, uh, the Valles expedition. Do you do you know anything about? I don't. Hernando Soto arrives. He this guy's here. He'd been living with the Indians, and then, as I understand it, Juan Ortiz accompanied uh, Hernando <laughs> Soto, who I think went all the way up into the Carolinas. Did he not? Juan Juan Ortiz is my favorite person. Wow. Um. Uh. The uh, you're right. He becomes separated from the expedition. He is captured by the. Uh, Tamunquin, Tamunquin Indians, kind of in the, what would be the Tampa area today. Um, and uh, the chief orders him put to death. Ooh. And uh, do any of you guys speak Tamunquin? No, sir. Just, just, speak a, English. just a little bit. A little bit? As well, I mean none. <laughs> you know, if you spoke Tamunquin, we'd know what they did to him. They built this large um, platform and built a fire over it and put him, and put him on top of it. Okay. And lit the fire. Okay. And if you spoke to Monkwin, we'd know what they were doing to him. Roasting the him word for <laughs> pardon. It sounds like they were, uh, they were slow cooking him. 
<laughs> oh, they're barbecuing the guy. I know yes. that. Yes, yeah. you do speak to Monquin. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Next time you have a barbecue, you're going to think about Juan Ortiz there. Um, yeah, uh, uh, that's a t- barbecue is a Tamunquin word. Oh, one no of the kidding. few that have been handed down, um, meaning to cook Juan Ortiz over a fire. The amazing <laughs> part, though, about Juan is, get this, Juan is being roasted alive, and the chief's daughter runs up to him and says, Father, spare him, for I love him. And the chief does, although Juan is a mess right now. And later the Spanish rescue him. He gets back to Spain and writes his memoirs. And uh, the memoirs are uh, talk about the Indian maiden saving his life. Years later, Captain John Smith of Jamestown steals Juan's story. I was going to say, and that, sounds, gonna say that sounds familiar. Sounds a lot like a Disney movie. Yeah, we know it today as the legend of Pocahontas, which ain't true. Um, people were always stealing from from Florida, uh, and so Juan's story has become Pocahontas and uh, John Smith. Um, so again, Juan gives this in his memoirs gives us this. Uh, Glimpse of the Indians, amazing glimpse. Holy moly! I didn't. My childhood shattered. Yeah. So yeah. Pocahontas is actually a fictional character. No, no, she's real, but any relationship with John Smith is made up. Any, you know, that she had saved his life and stuff. I, I did know that that was that was uh, nonfiction. The fact that Pocahontas, the the relationship between Pocahontas and John Smith was. The whole movie is is based on lies, Jim. Well, I never actually <laughs> saw the Disney movie, but like this is things that I definitely remember learning somewhere along the way that I thought were actually like real history classes in my public school education. Money to read. Yeah, you know, and that's that's one of the problems that even people who grew up in Florida and may have taken Florida history back in the day used United States textbooks, if you will, which begin with Jamestown and uh, and the Pilgrims. You remember they start there. Yeah. Uh, they overlook Florida. They, they're better now about uh, Native Americans, but for years they overlooked them, but they still overlook the Spanish. You remember um, you remember reading in your, your history textbooks um, in middle school and high school about the terrible first winter in Jamestown. Remember that? Sure. How they were all starving to death and and how terrible it was and oh, the agony. You know, if they had sailed a few hundred miles south, they could have checked into a hotel in St. Augustine and ordered room service. People don't realize that St. Augustine was, as the great historian Michael Gannon said, St. Augustine was undergoing urban renewal by the time the Jamestown settlers arrived. Wow. They'd been there a while. Yeah. They were tearing down buildings to build bigger ones. So one last question on the, on the Native Americans. I think we kind of tap danced around it. Earlier in the podcast, we talked about that there was probably millions of Indians. And we touched on, um, on, on the fact that there were seven tribes here and that all over 
North and South America, things were changing. And if I'm not mistaken, although I haven't read his full memoirs, even Cabeza de Vaca talks about certain tribes and whatnot that he encountered on his journey. To on Mexico. his trip, yes. But then later yes. on when, let's say, Europeans really start pushing westward, they're, they're gone. Is it? Yeah, mostly the smallpox fleeing, you know, hearing, hey, the, the uh, Europeans wipe you out. They have these diseases. So a lot of them voluntarily moved west. A lot of them were forced to move west. Andrew Jackson forces the, the Seminoles and the Creeks and others to march west, what becomes known as the, the Trail of Tears, um, forcing them to Arkansas and Oklahoma. That's why there are Seminole tribes in Oklahoma today. So what, what, I've heard all kinds of numbers, and maybe, I don't know if it's opinion or reality, where I was kind of going with that is, what do they estimate the actual mortality was largely due to disease because the European, uh, when the Europeans exposed the, uh, the, the indigenous people to the, to the various European diseases, you mentioned smallpox and whatnot. Do you have yeah, I've, I've heard numbers that go from five to six to seven figures. And, you know, we are still, remember this, the, people up until about 30 or 40 years ago really didn't care about the history of uh, indigenous people. Uh, as I said, when I took this course, and I'm old, um, nobody even mentioned the, the Native Americans except for Pocahontas, which wasn't true, and uh, the nice Indians who helped the pilgrims. Those were the only two things you knew about Indians uh, if you were in my generation and taking American history. So this study is kind of just beginning, and we have a long way to go. You know, I actually took uh, Florida history. I took Florida history as an elective class my senior year of high school. And even then, it, it didn't really dive into a lot of the stuff we've even covered thus far. It just seemed to kind of expand a little bit on what we learned in American history. It's very interesting. Yeah, it's it's the American view of Florida. You know, people don't realize, uh, uh, you know, how different Florida was. Um, you know, I tell people this and they're kind of surprised. Um, Florida supported the king during the American Revolution. Uh, Jim, you may think there were 13 colonies. And you read that in school, right? I did. Then I read the book. Yeah, there are 14 colonies. Uh, Florida is number 14. Uh, there were overtures for Florida to come to Philadelphia uh, in 1776. And we said, you people are crazy. What do you want to mess things up for? We thought the king was doing a great job. So, you know, here you go, Jim. Here's your question. Ready? Go for it. If you had been around in 1776, would you have been a patriot? Standing with George Washington as a Floridian, or would you have stood with King George, the crazy guy? That's a solid question. You know, I, I don't know if I really want to answer that because uh, I think that a lot of it would have to do with um, – <laughs> 
what your fortunes were at the time. If everything's going smooth. Well, you're a farmer. You're a farmer. Buying all my goods and shipping them, taking my citrus and pineapples back to. uh, to Oh, you're not that big a farmer. (laughs) You're just a guy on the frontier. (laughs) What Um, what do you think? Oh, man. Uh, Nostalgically, I'd like to say I'd be one of the, the three percenters that was out there that got all out of shape, but. The, the odds are you weren't. Most people weren't. You know, there's only yeah. a very small percentage of the population actually took up arms. It's well, like- you think you think about Florida and what the king wanted. Uh, the the dread. Remember the dreaded wool tax, right? The wool the, tax. The wool. W O. Oh, wool. Okay. Yeah. Wool. Remember the wool tax. <sighs> Refresh my. Memory. That the northern colonists hated. You guys got a lot of wool in your closet, do you? A lot of heavy overcoats? Yeah. You got a lot of those wool three-pointed hats at home? Right. Um, the uh, the other one was the, the the Boston Tea Party. Remember? The dreaded tax on tea. Boy, nothing like being 100 degrees out and having a nice cup of hot tea, right? <laughs> so... You know, I mean, think about this. Um, So you had two choices, ready? You could either go with the king and the wool tax, the tax on playing cards, and the tax on hot tea, right? Yeah. Or you could go with George Washington and the income tax, the sales tax, the property tax, the excise tax, the stock transfer tax, the capital gains tax, and all the rest. All right, I'm going back to Britain. Tax my tea. You, know, I was gonna you say, think about it. We'd be a British colony today like Bermuda. You ever hear anybody unhappy in Bermuda? <sighs> Not really. They do have funny clothes, though. It's uh, it, it's kind of hard to sit here in present day and look back at history knowing the outcome of, of the uh, knowing the outcome of your choice. To make a choice like that. Yep. Oh, it is. It is absolutely impossible. You're we, right. We, we skipped a whole chapter, though. We went right from, we almost skipped over Spain, right? We, we went right from Indians to English. So we, we know, the, you know, the Spanish, where we talked about, you know, Navarro and, and, and uh, Ponce de Leon and Hernando de Soto, but the Spanish weren't making any money here. And as I understand it, largely from what I read in, in one of your books, they could really care less about Florida until King Philip II sends a few Huguenots over here, you know, to get them out of his hair. And then all of a sudden the Spanish became interested. But to, what happened to the poor French? So I understand it was not nice. Well, you know, they were Huguenots. That's, that's accurate. But to the Spanish, it wasn't that they were Huguenots. They were Protestant heretics. And, the Pope largely controlled Spain. Spain was kind of a puppet of the Pope. And the Pope said, hey, we're not letting Protestants settle this area. As you point out, Spain had not found uh, any wealth in uh, Florida and was prepared to abandon it uh, until the French got here and the Pope said, hey, you guys got to go over there. I want you to build some missions. Uh, the other factor, of course, was the discovery of the Gulf Stream, which carried ships along the Florida coast out into the Atlantic. And uh, 
and then over to Spain. Uh, pirates quickly discovered that the Spanish ships were following that route and could wait off the coast. Uh, and so uh, St. Augustine was set up as kind of a headquarters for the Catholic Church, uh, but also as the outpost to ward off pirates. So uh, Spain really wasn't interested in uh, Florida per se, uh, except uh, to, to uh, get the Indians to convert to Catholicism and to protect their gold chips. So first the Spanish, then briefly ran by the French. How'd the British get involved? Um, Spain picks the wrong side in the French and Indian War. They go with the French and Indians. And when Britain wins the war, they also capture Cuba. And Cuba, I'm sorry, the Spanish have a choice. You can either have Cuba back and give us Florida, or we'll keep Cuba. Spain desperately wants Cuba back, and so they trade. And for a 20-year period, which includes all of the American Revolution, the British control Florida. In 1812, right? They were still here then? Uh, the Spanish? No, the British. They were here until 1821. Hmm. No, wait. No. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm mistaken. You, so the, the British had Florida... During the Revolutionary War, they were still here in 1812, weren't they? Isn't that... No, no, they lose no. out. When they lose the American Revolution, this time Spain is on our side. So Spain this time is on the winning side along with France. So Spain gets Florida back in 1783. Ah, all right. And that's why Jackson comes here during the War of 1812 to, you know, kill a few Indians and and other people, uh, because Spain cannot control its colony. They're by this time a third-rate power. Uh, people don't realize the influence. Um, I have another test for you. Are you ready? Let's have it. In a couple of years, Tallahassee will celebrate its 200th anniversary as the capital of Florida. One other city served as Florida's capital longer. Name that city. I'm going to guess either my first guess is St. Augustine. Uh, it, it's the longest standing city in the state of Florida. Am I correct? It is that. Yes. Either it's that. the longest continuously occupied. Yes. Either that or um, Jacksonville. I, I know there was uh, the, the city of Jacksonville versus Tallahassee. I can't remember why they chose Tallahassee over Jacksonville, but it was contested because Jacksonville was a port city. I would. I don't know where, but I'd be willing to guess that it is. It would not lie within modern day Florida. <laughs> Good for you, Havana. Oh, really? Wow. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, that's not crazy to think. Florida was ruled. In fact, believe it or not, uh, our archives are still in Flo in Havana. The early Florida records, land deeds, all that kind of thing, are in the archives in Cuba. In Havana. Prior to the show, we had a little brief discussion. You mentioned, uh, you asked you asked us what the largest city in Florida was in 1810. In West Florida. West Florida. And the answer was Baton Rouge. Yeah. So 
what roughly were the boundaries? Because other states talk about how uh, Florida stole, Alabama will say Florida stole part of their land and vice versa, but it turns out, no, that's not the, that's not true. Much like yeah, Mexico the, went all the way to Oregon. Remember, yeah, Florida? exactly. Remember, Hernando de Soto travels as far north as Washington, D.C. and present-day Washington, D.C., and then over to the Mississippi. So what we think of as the southeastern United States, he claims for Spain. And then people begin gobbling it up. By uh, late 1700s, uh, the panhandle, which today is a narrow strip, was about twice as wide as it was, included parts of Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and into Louisiana. And then they start taking pieces of land. Again, Spain was so weak they couldn't control anything. And by uh, uh, 1810, there is a revolution. The uh, settlers, mostly Americans, overthrow the Spanish in Baton Rouge and declare West Florida an independent republic. Uh, the United States says, uh-uh, we're not starting any more countries here. And the United States seizes West Florida, that from Pensacola to the Mississippi, uh, ends up being Louisiana, Alabama, and Mississippi's southern portion. So all those states take from us, Georgia takes from us, everybody. Um, we're kind of sad in a way how, how Florida has gotten about half the size of what it was once. So just imagine if Florida was the size it once was, how big the villages would actually be now. Yeah. <laughs> so after the Revolutionary War, the, the British lost interest in Florida and it, it reverted to Spanish control. What caused the United States to, to get involved in Florida? Uh, headaches, mostly. Uh, you know, it's funny. We celebrate Washington's birthday. George Washington hated Florida. It was nothing but a, a thorn for him. Uh, you know, we, we've seen the classic fo uh, photo. We've seen the classic drawing of of Cornwallis surrendering at Yorktown. We don't realize that a lot of those troops were Florida troops brought up from St. Augustine for what Cornwallis thought was going to be wiping out Washington's army. Uh, so uh, the barracks at, uh, at the uh, uh, fort in St. Augustine went up to join the final, what was to be the final battle, at, uh, at Yorktown. Um, but Spain can't control it. Uh, Andrew Jackson comes back a couple of times to hang people. Um, we're constantly fighting pirates. Uh, pirates take over what's now Amelia Island uh, and declare an independent republic. Uh, and, and just as in Baton Rouge, the Spanish can't do anything about it. Uh, Marauding groups are striking into Georgia uh, and committing crimes. And I think perhaps most importantly, hundreds and hundreds of slaves are escaping plantations in the Carolinas and Georgia and coming into Florida and freedom. So uh, 
you know, this is costing influential planters big money. So Florida man's been strong since the 1500s. <laughs> Florida's always Making been headlines wild. for 400 years. Absolutely. Almost 500. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's a strange thing about Florida. We, and I, I don't understand this. Um, the, we just don't have a love of our history. Um, I was in the post office the other day, and Missouri is celebrating some sort of anniversary and has a postage stamp for Missouri's whatever anniversary. This is the 200th year of Florida becoming part of the United States. The 200th, the bicentennial of Florida becoming part of the United States. And I'll bet you you haven't heard a word about it. There's no postage stamp, no celebration, no proclamations. We just don't seem to care about our history. So that would be what, 2023 or 2024 for the 200th year? No, 2021. It's now. Wow. Yeah. We signed the treaty in uh, 1819 and then finally get around to Andrew Jackson taking it in 1821. So, and then buying it in 19, we didn't celebrate either a couple of years ago. What? So in 1821, that's when it became a territory, correct? Yes, exactly correct. So after Florida became a territory, there wasn't really like a large rush for statehood. And then in 1850, Florida had fewer than 90,000 people of whom nearly half were slaves. Why did Florida remain largely empty for so long, even after the Civil War? Uh, it, uh, well, no, it becomes a state in 1845. And uh, there, what happens is that... Um, John Tyler, the, the president, President Tyler, pulls a fast one. And uh, uh, the rule had been that states are coming in in pairs, slave and free states, to keep the balance between free and slave states in the Senate so that neither side had power over the other side. So Florida is to be paired with Iowa. And Iowa says, hey, we're not ready yet. Check back with us. Um, So it looks like Florida is going to have to wait. Then uh, John Tyler, a big slaveholder who would later swear loyalty to the Confederacy in the final hours of his administration, admits Florida and Texas to the Union, giving the slave states a majority in the Senate. So it's kind of a trick to help the slave states, and it works. I had no idea that John Tyler had sworn allegiance to the Confederacy. Yes, uh, he was a big Confederate, and uh, here's the the weirdest thing. I, I guess I think it's he was born in 1795. Got that? Yeah. Okay. Think about that date, 1795. Okay. Today, right now, two of his grandsons are still alive. Cool. Wow. He was uh, evidently a prolific fella. 
Well, his first wife died. He started another family. And so, you know, his children were born anywhere from the 1820s to the 1860s, uh, over about 40, 50 year period. Guy must eat a lot of oysters. (laughs) (laughs) So we kind of briefly touched on the Civil War, but, you know, it seems like throughout the Revolutionary War and all that stuff, Florida has kind of uh, either remain absent from uh, they've taken a neutral standpoint or been on the opposite side of the rest of the U.S. What what type of role did, did Florida play in the Civil War? Um, as one northern paper calls it, we were the uh, smallest tadpole in the cesspool of revolution. <laughs> uh, of the 600,000 Confederate soldiers, only 15,000. What is that? Uh uh, 2%, 3% come from Florida. Florida's role is primarily uh, beef for the Confederacy early in the war, salt, uh, because we have so much beach area. Um, I didn't know this until I started studying Florida history. Did you guys know this? You use salt for about everything. Um the Confederacy used salt to make boots. Oh, uh, yeah, tanning, yeah. Tanning, I didn't know that. Um, and to make ammunition, you need salt. I just Gunpowder. Yep. Yeah, everything. You need salt. And so Florida, with its beaches, was able to, to provide salt um, for the uh, Confederacy. Late in the war, not even late in the war, beginning in 1862, when the Confederacy can no longer pay for cattle and cash or gold, uh, and they start handing out Confederate money, the cattlemen take their cows way down to Fort Myers down in there to hide them. They're not going to, unless they get gold, they're not going to part with their cattle for Confederate money. So uh, Florida's role is uh, largely um, to provide, you know, kind of a breadbasket but also, it's a good place with its coastline for uh, Confederate ships to come in, bringing goods from Europe, uh, the famed blockade runners. Uh, Florida is really tough to blockade, as you can imagine. How in the world did they get them from Florida to someplace else, though? There was hardly well, any if here. Think about the panhandle. I mean, from St. Joe and St. Mark's right there in the panhandle, Georgia's... Uh, you know, just a short distance away. Got it. So they brought them in from the Gulf side. They weren't, they weren't bringing them into Miami. Oh no. (laughs) Miami was a couple of years away. That's actually a pretty good segue. So we stayed largely empty even after the civil war. But what, what really started to, drive tourism in Florida's infancy? Yeah, I think in the early days, um, it was the springs. And it was a belief that if you had consumption, uh, which is a a name for a disease similar to tuberculosis, that Florida provided a cure. There was absolutely no evidence of that. In fact, some people pointed out that if your lungs were full of fluid, 
coming to a humid climate was probably the worst thing for it. Yeah. Uh, it'd be better to go to Arizona, you know, a nice dry climate. But people came for the springs and um, to cure tuberculosis. Um, and then later, people began to uh, have uh, entertainment, uh, primarily in Jacksonville. Um, one of the first acts was uh, train bears. And uh, these bears were really talented. They do all kinds of things. I, I'm really impressed. And then uh, alligators and uh, ostriches became the big ones. Yes. Did you know you can race on ostriches? Like you can put a saddle yeah. on an ostrich. I've seen it. And race it. On the interwebs. Well, yeah. no surprise on the bears. You watch them come in and pilfer, uh, pilfer some garbage right out of your trash can sometimes. Smart not even knock the thing over. So yeah. <laughs> You need to train them. Yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a picture of a, of a bear holding a stick, just like a person standing up on his hind legs, holding a stick. I, you know, and while another bear climbs what looks like a light pole. So, um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's the early entertainment. Um, uh, but it won't be on the, and during World War II, Florida had the smallest population in the Southeast. Think about that. We were we had fewer people than South Carolina, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama. And after World War II, there are three things that make Florida. Uh, window air conditioners, uh, social security, and DDT to kill mosquitoes. And once those three things happen, Florida takes off. So, you know, we talked about tourism, what drove tourism, but what drove the railroads to Florida and how did that impact Florida population? Yeah, uh, that plays a huge role. Henry Flagler makes his money and it's a fortune. Uh, we're talking about, you know, Bill Gates kind of money uh, as a partner with John D. Rockefeller. And Rockefeller, who was the head of the firm, rightfully so, I think, gets uh, uh, the credit. But uh, Flagler plays a huge role. Uh, in fact, you know how uh, brutal Rockefeller was. Um, they used to say that when you compared Rockefeller and Flagler, Rockefeller was the nice one. Um, uh, Flagler was the one who came up with the way to create the monopoly. Pretty it wasn't cool. Rockefeller. R Flagler created the trusts and the blind trusts and the secret trusts and, and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, so he makes a fortune and he comes to Florida. His, uh, first wife dies and he remarries. And then I think my, my, you know, I don't know him very well. He died, what, 1912? Uh, but, um, you know, I think he wanted to make his own mark. He was always known as, you know, John Rockefeller's partner. You know, hey, there's John Rockefeller's partner. And so I think the, the tourism and the railroad were his way of uh, 
of making his mark. He begins cobbling together small railroads from Jacksonville to uh, St. Augustine, builds the magnificent Ponce de Leon Hotel, um, and the one across the street uh, is for kind of support people, servants, and people like that. And But again, you know, this guy's a brutal businessman. When somebody else builds a hotel, he puts them out of business and forces them to sell him his hotel at his price. So he's a, a tough businessman. A freeze sends him down to Ormond. He buys a hotel there, uh, which has since been torn down. It was made of wood. And then he moves almost to Titusville. And he's going to build what becomes Palm Beach in Titusville. And he becomes convinced, here he is one of the richest men in the world, and he becomes convinced that Colonel Titus is ripping him off. So he says, heck with you, and goes on down to create Palm Beach and West Palm Beach. Um, then he begins extending his railroad to Miami. Um, he was wrong about some things. First of all, he never intended for Miami to come a, become a big city. He thought it would be like Ormond Beach or something. He had no idea. And when Julia Tuttle kept trying to hit him up for money to develop Miami, he kept saying, Mrs. Tuttle, I had no idea you were going to do this. He saw it as just another stop on his railroad with a hotel. And then he was pushing on for the Keys. Uh, he built a hotel in Long Key. Then he built a hotel in Key West. So his idea was you'd have a, a chain. People don't realize that Flagler creates the first hotel chain. So he develops tourism, but he was, again, primarily a businessman. He saw the railroad as carrying freight, oranges, vegetables, and so he was trying to make money. It wasn't some charitable thing he was doing. So, so then you mentioned he's kind of brutal. Didn't Henry, wasn't Henry, not, uh, yeah, was Plant's first name Henry? Henry Plant? Henry Plant, yeah. Henry Plant. Wasn't he doing business in the oh, same Oh, Henry time? Plant. He, I'm sorry. Go was ahead. It, was, was it, did Flagler and Plant get along? Were they rivals? Was Plant just the guy that ran down the west coast of Florida? Because their, yeah, their they were, business seemed to be a little different. Where they never really competed, and they had this friendly rivalry. They would uh, kid each other. Um, and I'll, I'm, I'm going to say some words here, but I'm not quoting. I, I wish I had it in front of me. Um, uh, Plant sent uh, flag or a telegram announcing the opening of his Tampa hotel and uh, Flagler telegraphed back, where's Tampa? And Plant telegraphed back, follow the crowds. Uh, so it was very, they were never competing. Uh, Plant again went down the West Coast, uh, Tampa and, and further on down. Um, Plant, uh, an amazing story of a guy who was in the right place at the right time. Um, he's the agent for a freight company. Imagine you're head of the FedEx office in Atlanta, for example, and a civil war starts 
and suddenly the Atlanta office is in a different country. And, you know, you're not going to have shipping back and forth. So, in effect, he becomes head man for this uh, uh, freight office, which is now, you know, hauling things for the Confederacy, delivering things. And so he makes a fortune during the Civil War. And, and then he begins, as Flagler had done, putting together little railroads into one big railroad. Um, the Florida East Coast Railroad is Flagler's. Flagler's, you have the Seaboard Coastline, you have the Atlantic Coastline. All these now are really part of the uh, uh, CSX, the old, out of what? I think they're out of Jacksonville today. I'm, yeah. I'm, don't quote me on that, but yeah. So, um, you know, uh, Flagler and Plant really develop uh, tourism in Florida. Flagler is the better known. Uh, you have Plant City um, over near Tampa, and you have Flagler County. Uh, Flagler did not want things named after him. He told Mrs. Tuttle, Mrs. Tuttle wrote him and said, hey, we're going to name this city after you. And he said, don't. And so she named it Miami uh, after the river and the Indian tribe. That's wild. Well, Les, I don't know if I'm accurate on this. I think somewhere along the way, I thought I remember learning that um, Henry Plant's hotel that eventually went to Tampa and kind of put Tampa on the map was originally supposed to go to Cedar Key. I think Cedar Key was the bigger, the bigger place at the time. And earlier mentioned that um, Colonel Titus and Flagler for whatever reason, didn't get along, but didn't something similar ha happen with plant and uh, the folks at Cedar key. They thought that they were going to pull one over on him and he pulled up stakes and went further South as well. Or, yeah. Or he got into a dispute there. Cedar key is uh, an amazing town. Can you name two companies in Cedar key? A hundred and God, 50 years ago, Eberhardt favor pencil company. And oh. the Eagle, and the Eagle Pencil Company. I got a paper mate. I'm, oh, that's a that's a mechanical. <laughs> no, they did not make plastic pencils in the eighteen hundreds. <laughs> no, you know I. Now that you mentioned that, that somewhere along the way, I did pick up that piece of trivia. Um, they were made of cedar. That makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. They had a huge sawmill there. Yeah. Gotcha. Wow. Still paper mate. Yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> you ever been to Leroy, New York? Jello started at a place yes. called Leroy, and Leroy's only got like nine people in it. So, um, big smokestack still there. Drove past there. I was like, that's where Jello started. So, it doesn't surprise me that <laughs> pencil started in Cedar Key. I, I never would have guessed pencils. No. 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 That's, that's crazy. You know, we talk a lot about like the citrus and the cattle and stuff when he thinks. But, you know, when, when he asked questions like that, but earlier you had said that Florida was big in the Civil War for its salt. How much of a role did salt play in these railroads? I mean, were they transporting salt or? Not much because uh, except during the war, there are salt mines. In fact, Western Virginia has salt mines. I never knew that either until, you know, a couple decades ago. Uh, so there was salt available. But during the Civil War, the supply dried up or the price went up. So in Florida, they were taking seawater 
and, you know, uh, doing stuff to it, boiling it and stuff like that, uh, and getting the salt out of the, you know, sea salt, in effect. So it wasn't salt like, you know, Morton's salt or whatever. It was sea salt. So uh, Florida only played a role during the Civil War for salt. After that, it wasn't needed. As much. Yeah, Jordan, with uh, one of the places we like to frequent up in uh, Cape Sandblast, uh, they still have the, the, there's a little bit of the earthworks left over from an old salt works they had in St. Joe Bay. And as I oh, really? That, yeah, yeah, there's a historical marker there. and But as I understand it, um, I think what that is, I think they built up earthen walls and pumped water into them so that the water was then higher than the, the regular bay height. And then it would just simply evaporate. But I think that what happens is they, you know, the, the union brought a gunship in there and just punched a bunch of holes in the, in the earthworks and your salt, your yeah, salt. Bye-bye. Bye. Yeah, it was all just drained back into the, into it was, the, the thing was they would see union ships coming and the equipment they needed was not that great. So they would just either vanish or let the, the union destroy it and then start all over again. So that was one of the beauties of Florida was, you know, it didn't take that much to, to make the salt in terms of equipment. It wasn't very sophisticated. So the, the union uh, ships, as you point out, kept destroying it. And then they were back in business in a few days. You know, something else I think uh, we haven't touched on yet that is, there's actually, I see it across a lot of hunting groups in Florida and stuff like that, that, is the turpentine industry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, turpentine from the pine trees. Yeah. The trees play a role early in Florida's history. Um, and I, I don't know. I need to look this term up because I use it and I have no idea what it means. I, I did. Wait a minute. I know what it is, but I don't know why they call it this. It's called naval stores. Have you heard that term? Yes, sir. It's stuff to build ships or make ships waterproof and turpentine and and tar and things like that. That uh, and the lumber um, that beginning in the 1700s, uh, Florida becomes North Florida becomes this huge supplier of uh, lumber to build ships. Um, uh, president John Adams, the second president. Uh, becomes a huge fan of Florida lumber and turpentine and all these naval stores kinds of things. Um, and so Florida becomes kind of the the shipbuilding supply capital of the nation. The trees are so plentiful. Um, and so like any other resource, they get cut down. Yeah, as, as I understand it, the term naval stores actually referred – to the pine resin itself. Like that was the pine resin was naval stores. And that was just like a, a term that they would use because they would take the naval stores or the pine resin and then turn it into all kinds of stuff. So I, I think. But I don't know why they call it naval stuff, stores. Because a lot of the applications were, were um, naval, I suppose in there. <laughs> they made shoe polish out of it and all kinds of stuff, but. And I'm, I may be correct, incorrect in that, but I think that that was, if you, I think if you <laughs> Some, were wandering around here in the early 1800s. Somebody will correct us. <laughs> yeah, probably. I'll probably get something on Facebook like you idiot. But, 
So <clears throat> we kind of we we talked about how Florida starts to gain popularity through the railroad and hotels and all this stuff, and then uh, the invention of the air conditioner brings more people here after World War II and and killing off of mosquitoes and all that stuff. But Florida's population growth rate today has risen to about three hundred thousand people annually, many of whom are moving to Florida from other states. In your opinion, <clears throat> what keeps driving folks to Florida? Is it more than just the weather? Oh, I think it's a number of factors. You know, one of my favorite lines was from the uh, governor of Georgia during the Great Depression. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of people came here during the Great Depression. Uh, even though there were no jobs, if you're going to be hungry, you might as well be warm. And the greatest number came from Georgia. And the governor of Georgia was asked if he was concerned about the large number of Georgians moving to Florida. And he said no, that it increased the average IQ in both states. That hurts. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I think, I think there are several things. First of all, our Constitution, this is in the Constitution, uh, and it's doubtful anybody's going to vote to change it, uh, says there can't be an income tax. Um, so, you know, you have all these millionaires like former President Trump moving here who doesn't have to pay New York State income tax. Uh, there's no inheritance tax. Uh, it's very, uh, under both Democrats and Republicans, has been very uh, business friendly. Uh, and so it's been a driving thing. Uh, companies have come here, the tourism industry, you know, employs hundreds of thousands of people. Also the military, you know, this began um, really in World War One, when uh, when the Navy started training pilots in Pensacola because the weather was nice. Um, you know, skies are clear, warm weather. Remember, airplanes back then were open. Uh, so, uh, and by World War Two, there were literally scores of military bases here. Some of them are still here. Plus, during the war, uh, World War II, you had hundreds of thousands of soldiers trained here. John Kennedy trained here. The first President Bush trained here. Uh, and many of them liked Florida and either came back after the war or tucked their memory of Florida away and said, you know, when I retire, I'm coming back to Florida. And so people who you know, served in the war till 1945. You know, they retired uh, 40 years later and moved to Florida. So you had all these things working to Florida's benefit. So as a historian, uh, you, you can look in the past to see what occurred to make Florida what it is today. Does your sense of history provide any insight as to what the future may hold for Florida? Yeah, I think, um, you know, we've been lucky since about 2004, in terms of dodging hurricanes. Uh, and nobody quite knows, uh, you know, what would happen if there was just a, a brutal storm. We've seen what happened in New Orleans with Katrina uh, and a couple storms since then. Um, and so I think that the weather is always a threat. Whether global warming 
plays a role. You know, uh, earlier in this uh, podcast, you mentioned Ocala. Maybe we should be in the Ocala National Forest. Maybe we should be moving to Ocala uh, to uh, 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 buy land there because it may be the only dry spot left in Florida in another hundred years or so. Um, so, you know, I think uh, it's going to cost a lot of money. Parts of Miami are already kind of underwater. Um, so I think there are a lot of threats to Florida. The question is whether people will start addressing them. And, you know, traditionally, and this is true of both parties, I'm not trying to pick on anybody. Uh, we like to kick the can down the road uh, and not do anything. And that's the easiest way. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see if people are going to, if you will, face up to these problems. So uh, you, you all are in uh, Eustace and uh, Lake County, uh, you know, we're talking about Native Americans. Um, uh, I don't know if you know this, uh, Lake and what's now Orange and uh, Seminole and Osceola were once the Seminole Indian Reservation. You are living on land stolen from the Indians today. Um, and then you became, I love this, this name, you became part of Mosquito County. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, we love and that when we too. became a state, it became Orange County. And in 1887, Lake County splits off from Orange County, and they take part of uh, Sumter County. It's really strange. Leesburg used to be in Sumter County, and I'm not quite sure how they got to steal part of Sumter County. Um, the uh, and so, uh, 1887, got that? Got it. There are very few people in the county in 1887. And it's sometime, some months before somebody wanders into the county office building in uh, now Tavares. I've never understood how Tavares got to be the county seat. Um, because Leesburg, pardon? Because it's on the lake. Well, I guess Leesburg well, is too. Well, Leesburg was the county seat of Sumter County. It already had a courthouse. You'd think they'd, anyway. Um, so, okay, so this couple wander in to get a marriage license. Tell me who this couple was. The Disneys. Yes. Yes, you're a genius. Walt Disney's parents uh, get married in Lake County. They lived uh, in Paisley, if I'm... Yeah, they did. Yes, they North, you're absolutely right. There are still Disney relatives there in uh, Northern Lake County. Yeah. So when Walt, they're I'm actually sorry, go buried ahead. in the cemetery in Paisley. You're absolutely right. Gosh, you're good. We we yeah, learned all um, this. We learned all this information when we were when we were cleaning up garbage in the Ocala National Forest from a couple of gentlemen that live up there in the forest. Yeah. Really? Yes. Wow. Yeah, people don't realize that, you know, people think of Walt as California or maybe Chicago or Missouri. They don't realize his ties to Florida. And both of his parents were Floridians. Both sets of grandparents were Floridians. Um, and he used to come here as a child, you know, to see his cousins during the summer, things like that. So, you know, it was it's not unusual. Um 
And uh, in fact, he narrows it down to four cities for his uh, new theme park, uh, Orlando, Bradenton, Daytona. And you know the fourth one? Deland, wasn't it? No. No. Ocala. I would say Ocala. Mm. Yeah. And uh, he drops Bradenton and Daytona because he says he doesn't want to compete with what he calls a free attraction. The beach. The beach. Yes. You guys are good. Yeah. The beach. You know, and ask yourselves today, do you want to spend $100 to go to Disney World or go to the beach for free? Uh, <laughs> Even if I got so, both for free, I'd rather go to the beach. Because <laughs> we live here, man. If you lived in Paducah, you'd be all about Disney. So, oh, but yeah. There, there's some very interesting history when it comes to Disney and, and Florida in the area we're in. If I remember correctly, there was a the was it the hotel they got married at that was on Lake Door that was moved down yeah. into downtown Eustis, the Kismet Hotel. Yeah. yeah, they picked it up and moved it into downtown Eustis, and I don't think the building still it exists no longer today. stands. It yeah. got uh, it was burnt down in a fire. Yeah. So, so you know the funny part is, and I can't remember which set of grandparents it was, but one set tries to open a resort hotel over in Volusia County and fails. You know, you think, you know, you think that the Disney's would know how to operate a resort hotel, you know? Uh, and yet uh, Walt apparently is better at it than his, uh, his grandparents were. In fact, they failed at everything. It was just amazing. And that's why they gave up. Yeah. You got him back in the end. You know, we've got a fair amount of that owns half of Osceola County at this point in time. and That's about true, yeah. Yeah, pretty wise. They figured it out. And I wonder, you know, I wonder if some of that, if Walt's business savvy, you know, because we learned from failures. You got to wonder if some of Walt's business savvy came from hearing the woulda, coulda, shouldas from mom and dad and grandpa and things like that. You never know. Well, you know, that that's an excellent point. And in fact, you know, he ends up buying 27,000 acres in Florida. And his brother, Roy, who was the businessman, kept saying, why are we buying 27,000 acres? And Walt's response was, don't you wish we had bought 27,000 acres in Anaheim for Disneyland? And Roy would say, well, yeah, I guess we did. And, and the amazing part is that, you know, we spent the last, what, 60 years thinking what a huge tract of land this is. And the Disney company has been buying more land. Mm -hmm. Whoever thought they'd need more than 27,000 acres? Um, you know, and yet they have become such a force that they're looking into buying more land. Well, that actually kind of leads to some of the headaches that we have here is like, so I've kind of got two questions. I mean, earlier you pointed out that Floridians for whatever reason are, already terrible about f holding on to their history. And it's like, it's almost like other people tell us what our history is, that our history is not important. So, and as the population continues to grow with a lot of people that are, are, are making it grow that they're not from here and they don't have roots here, how, how do we hold on to our past? And then the second part of that is, I don't know, should we? Um, I mean, I yeah. think we definitely need to learn it, but, 
Yeah, I think I think so. Um, you know, Bob Graham, the former senator and governor, calls it Cincinnati syndrome. And, you know, people grow up in Cincinnati. They move here. They live here for 50 years. And people say, hey, where are you from? And they say Cincinnati. They don't say Palm Beach or uh, Miami. You know, it's uh, and he says, and then when they die, they leave all their money to the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra. Um, and so it's really hard for for people to become Floridians. You know, and I, there used to be a number and I've forgotten it. And this has been cha- changing uh, over the years. But more than half of our governors and senators were born outside of Florida. You know, I mean, uh, so many of us are transplants who don't have a sense of history of Florida. Um you know, back in the day, I took Maryland history. I can tell you all about Lord Baltimore. Uh, and I'm sure people took New York history or Pennsylvania history and can tell you all about William Penn. But there just aren't a lot of people who have taken Florida history. You know, we're hunters and fishermen, but we'll, we'll talk to anybody that's passionate about their subject. So thank you very much for being so passionate about Florida. But our show, you know, largely caters to those that are like to play on public land, public water. And one of the biggest things that we're really struggling with is the fact that our population is growing by about 300,000 people a year from both, you know, our, our birth rate exceeds our death rate. And then a lot of people are moving here. Um, but it creates an awful lot of challenges and conflicts to, to, to our hobbies. Do you, you see any good news coming in, in that respect or, or should we all just buckle up and, and realize that it ain't going to get better from here? Not much. Have you ever been fishing for bonefish? No, but no, we've got sir. a good friend that's a premier captain for it down, down, uh, down in the Keys. You know who held the bonefish record in Florida for more than three decades? Wait a minute. Uh, is it a president of the United States? Yes. Oh man, I. I I have. I can't remember which one. I can remember it's a president, but I. uh, Herbert Hoover. It is Hoover. Okay. And do you know uh, who introduced the world to uh, uh, catching sailfish? Nope. Zane Gray, the great Western writer. Uh, He opened up the keys in South Florida to fishing. He was the first, this is 110 years ago, writing about how great the fishing was in South Florida for magazines like Field and Stream. Uh, uh, You know, so these strange people play this role. Ernest Hemingway writing about fishing in in the Keys. Uh, So you have all these famous people who come to Florida to, uh, to fish. Um, uh, Warren G. Harding uh, would come to Florida to fish. Um, uh, the first presidential fisherman is um, uh, Chester A. Arthur, who uh, who was also I okay. Here's your here's another stumper for you. Chester A. Arthur comes to Florida in 1883. He is the first president to come to Florida. We've been part of the Union for 60 years. Nobody's ever come here who's president, right? 
he wants to go fishing. And so he goes to Kissimmee. The president of the United States is forbidden to go south of Kissimmee, Florida in 1883. Why is that? Engine territory. No. Yellow fever? No. There's no telegraph line. And the president cannot be out of touch with Washington. Wow. So he, he brings all these people with him to go fishing. And on the morning they are getting ready to go fishing, they come to him and they're a little chagrined. And they say, well, we don't want to go fishing. And he says, what are you talking about? We came here to go fishing. And they say, well, there's this big lake here called Lake Toho. And the local people say they'll take us out to shoot alligators on the lake. And, you know, we can fish in Washington. We can't shoot alligators there. And so most of his party go off to on alligators on Lake Toho. So here's the president of the United States, and he asks the local, hey, where is there some good fishing? And the local says, well, there's this creek up here that has great fishing. And so uh, Arthur goes up to the lake. Sure enough, great fishing. Catches God knows how many fish, brings them all back, finds the man, says, thank you so much. That's one of the greatest places I've ever been. Fast forward 80 years, exactly. Walt Disney will come to the same creek and build Disney World on its shores. Reedy Creek. Reedy Creek. Reedy. Wow. The same place that Chester A. Arthur discovered in 1883. In fact, it's called the governmental unit there. Jim, as you know, it's called the Reedy Creek Improvement District. Yeah. Isn't you know, that amazing? I bet you when Chester Arthur got here, the folks that were that met him said, oh, it's all downhill. You missed the good old days. <laughs> right? Because by, that's what they were telling Hemingway when he was in the Keys. Like, ah, it's ruined. You've, you've missed the good old days. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> yeah. you should have seen it uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like, right? Because Zane Gray predated Hemingway, right? Everybody thinks about Hemingway introducing fishing. And I was unaware of the Zane Gray books talking about Florida. But that's... That, that's pretty. He wrote a book. He wrote a book about fishing in Florida. Another book I got to read. Um, yeah, and uh, uh, and really promoted fishing and and introduced people to different kinds of fishes. Um, and was big in uh, catch and release. Um, there's the um, the Long Key Fishing Club, which had I think Zane Gray was a founder. But Franklin Roosevelt was a member. Herbert Hoover was a member. All these, you know, amazing people were members and all practiced. Part of their their thing was catch and release. Zane Gray was one of the, uh, I guess, founders of the catch and release movement. So uh, in way back then, they were worried that we'd run out. Yeah. Wow, it's amazing. Whew. We covered an awful lot today. We have, and we've only scratched the surface. We've we've only scratched the surface of what there is to really discover about Florida, 
and and the rich history we we do possess here as a state. Um, oh, Dr. Clark, for you, what what's been the most rewarding part uh, of being a professional historian? You know, I think it's finding things, and and somebody pointed this out to me when I was at the University of Florida uh, forty years ago, nearly forty years ago, um, that uh, uh, that because of this lack of interest, there are so many things that people have not written about. You know, if uh, I, I told you the Chester A. Arthur story, if this had happened in Pennsylvania, there'd be three books about it. You know, um, uh, there's so many things. A uh, number of years ago, uh, when I was still a journalist uh, uh, and, and in graduate school, I uncovered a story about a, a civil rights leader named Harry T. Moore, who was killed by the Klan, and nobody had ever written about it. Um, it was kind of forgotten. And so uh, nearly everything you look at, although that's changing rapidly now, is kind of fertile ground, and that's not true in the North. Uh, I had a friend uh, who uh, was at, uh, I think, Harvard, and wanted to do his dissertation on Concord, New Hampshire, or Concord, Massachusetts, and found that, you know, there had already been 10 of them done. You know, that's not true of Florida. So I think you can have people on your, your program uh, with different perspectives. Um, you know, people like Andrew Frank at FSU, who's the state expert on Indians, uh, David Head at my school at UCF, who's the uh, world expert on George Washington and, and pirates. He's an expert on pirates. We get um, yeah, David's a great <laughs> one. Yeah. And uh, he's literally he's written the book on pirates in Florida. Um, and uh, so there's so many uh, great people uh, that, uh, that uh, doing research into Florida uh, and uh, – you know, uh, at my school, David Morton has been researching movie making in Florida, uh, which is fascinating. People don't realize that before they went to Flo to uh, Hollywood, the movie makers came to Jacksonville. At one point, there were 20 movie studios, including Edison's in Jacksonville. Nobody knows that. You never hear about that. Um, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon was shot in Florida. Remember that one? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Had Clint Eastwood. I think that was his first role. He was a, he was a lab assistant. It, it was it really? Yeah, I go back and I watch Julie, Clint Eastwood in. Julie Adams was the star. And uh uh yeah, it was shot at uh the Springs, one in North Florida and and Silver Springs over uh in West Florida. So on the West Coast. As we're closing, I want, to, I want to back up a little bit because you, you referred to the civil rights leader whose last name I think is Moore. If I'm not mistaken, he, he was killed out in uh, in Mims, if I'm, if I'm not. Is That's that exactly killed? right, Jim. Exactly right. His home was blown up on Christmas Eve, and uh, he and his wife were both killed by the Klan. I know. Uh -huh. Just recently, this is another little sidebar, a small town thing. There was, uh, there was four gentlemen from Groveland that were uh, – you know, suffered a real miscarriage of injustice. They, I think they were convicted. Uh, well, actually, a lot of them got killed before that, but they were accused, I think, of um, 
assaulting a white woman or something like that. There's four, yes. four young men in Groveland, and they really got ramrodded. But uh, it was it was it's it's a little too late because they're they're all dead. But I, if I'm not mistaken, last October the state did their best to rectify that, and uh, and they uh, they did dismiss the charges. I mean, the, unfortunately, the, the men. The, I think two of them were killed by a local sheriff, uh, you know, under suspicious circumstances. Exactly. You're two, absolutely right. Yeah, You're absolutely sure. right. And the governor, Governor DeSantis, much to his credit, moved quickly after becoming governor to uh, uh, to pardon these men uh, and uh, did the right thing after all these years. I, you know, um, uh, one of the four, and you just kind of, it's hard to get your head wrapped around this. One of the four had an alibi. Okay. And you're thinking, well, an alibi, somebody could have lied for him. No, his alibi was he was in jail two counties over when it took place. <laughs> that's, that's ridiculous. Yeah. No doubt about it. Uh, you know, they just kind of rounded up people. And uh, Willis McCall was the, the horrible sheriff up there and uh, really kind of uh, kind of tragic what happened to these young men. And there again, you know, just what, five, six years ago, Gilbert King won the Pulitzer Prize for his book about Groveland, bringing it to the attention of the, the nation. You know, if this had been, for example, the Scottsboro Boys in Alabama, or some of the other big civil rights cases, you would have studied this in school. Uh, it's only been in the last 20 years or so that people started writing about Groveland. So uh, again, there's so many topics. And if people are interested in history, I would encourage them to, to do some research and, and find out uh, the history of their, their state. I agree. There's a, it's unfortunate we just close with some tragedy. You know, again, Rosewood's another tragedy that people didn't realize about until somebody made a movie about it. And Rosewood's just outside of Cedar Key. But there's an awful lot of great history in Florida that isn't necessarily such a downer. Um, like Le Le Levy County was named for a, a you know, a very early uh, a Jewish, uh, I don't think, was he a senator or a congressman? Or he was, a, he was the, the very first senator from Florida was Jewish. And he was the first Jewish senator to serve in the United States Senate uh, for reasons I've never understood. And nobody has. He changed his name as an adult. Um, and it was uh, David Levy Yuli. And so we have this bizarre thing where there are two places named for him with different names. Yeah, there's Yuli Levy County, as you point out, in the panhandle. And there's a town called Yuli. In Florida. And so both named for this man whose father had come to uh, Florida in the early 1800s. He had been in the court of a sultan of Morocco and fled and come to Florida. And his idea was to create a Jewish state in Florida. And he acquired, I think, 50,000 acres and was going to create this state for Jews being persecuted in Europe in the 1840s. And 
It didn't work out, but his son then became senator. And how many people know that story? Very few. But yeah. it's a, you know, I said, there's, I didn't mean to get down too much because we'll talk to you for another four hours about Florida history. We do need to kind of wrap it up. Or maybe we need to have you back on to talk about some of these more interesting things that are just periods in time that either didn't work out or maybe did work out, but we're completely unaware of how they got to that point. But for those that are interested maybe in becoming a, or pursuing a career in history, um, how do you think they should go about it? You, you mentioned it wasn't your first career. You, you are now explains why you wrote 10 books, right? You were a journalist for, for a number of years, but how would you encourage uh, young people to maybe get into, a, into a career in history if they're interested? And then after that, you got to tell us, tell our listeners about how in the world they can find your books. Uh, my books are in Barnes and Noble. They're on Amazon, on barnesandnoble.com, uh, in other bookstores. They're pretty available. Uh, so um, people can find them uh, uh, lots of places. Uh, and if they want to study Florida history or any history, you know, Florida universities, mine, of course, has a great history department, a great history program, but so does Florida, so does FSU, um, and uh, pardon? Small schools, we don't want to talk about that. Small schools, yeah, <laughs> um, that have great Florida history programs. University of South Florida has two of the preeminent historians, uh, Ray Arsenal and Gary Mormino. Uh, so uh, there are just lots of places to study Florida history, and now there's so many books not just by me, but by dozens of Florida authors. You have Andrew Frank writing about Indians in Florida. You have Gary Mormino on uh, 20th century uh, Florida and, and kind of post-World World War II. Uh, so you've got lots of people now writing about Florida. Interesting. Well, we, we like to... Uh... We like to end every episode with a tip of the week. And uh, Dr. Clark, if you would like to join us in doing that, I, we'll go round table around the table here and uh, we'll let you go last. And I, I'll All start right. us off by saying that uh, never stop learning, whether it comes to the game you're pursuing or just in general life, there's always something new to be learned, especially with advancing technology and everything else. Um, but history, especially, I've always been a big fan of history. What do you got, Jim? So this weekend, I'm going to get completely off the history subject. This weekend is part of our R3 effort. Good friend Jason Gonder, who we've mentioned here a few times on the podcast and still need to get him in. Uh, he was instrumental in our hike to hunt effort. He uh, he brought a gentleman who hadn't hunted since he was a kid up to our hunt camp in Georgia. And that person was fortunate enough to knock down uh, a doe that we processed there in camp. But you know in Florida, we can't bring things back on the bone. Right. So... Um, he's worried about getting his meat back in reasonable condition. And, uh, you know, the first thought was, Oh, go get a bunch of ice. And I said, do not put that deer in ice. Cause what you're going to get back with is gray meat. But fortunately we do have a, a free, you know, a couple small freezers up there that we can freeze water bottles. in. so this is the big tip, you know, think ahead. Uh, we were fortunate that it was so cool up there this week and we could just leave the meat in the cooler without anything, but then to transport it home as it started to get warm, we actually took a bunch of water bottles, froze those water bottles, put those water bottles in the bottom of the cooler, then you lay your meat over that. It actually allows it to start to age so that all the you know initial 
for lack of a better term, drainage of fluids that are leaving the muscle groups and things like that drains out between the bottles, but you don't end up with that nasty gray water saturated meat that people often get when they just try to put their meat in ice. So the tip of the week is think ahead, take some frozen water bottles with you or have means at which to keep something that's enclosed and frozen when you're bringing your meat home from out of town trips. And that way you'll be, you'll have a much better product in the end. What do you got, Jordan? I'm going to say with this cooler weather coming in, right? Still don't forget to hydrate. Right, because even though it's cooler and you may think that you don't need to hydrate as much because it's not as hot outside, you still gotta hydrate. Hydrate, hydrate, hydrate. All right, Dr. Clark, impart some knowledge on us. Mine is you know, never bet against Florida. Uh people who have thought, Oh, housing prices will come down or something, you know, this can't last, have always eventually been proven wrong. And this was brought home just a couple months ago. In one of my books, I had a picture of a big billboard from 1927 for land in North Miami Beach, oceanfront land. You could buy a 50-foot lot for $745. I'll take two. (laughs) Well, the, the bust came, and it didn't sell, okay? And it sat empty. And this is true. You can Google this. Uh, About two months ago, I'm reading the Wall Street Journal, and the lot finally sold for $12.5 million. I was going to say, for how many million dollars? (laughs) Yeah. You could have bought the lot uh, 92 years ago for $745, and a businessman uh, in Chicago paid $12.5 million the lot they could not sell 92 years ago. So the family so, just held it the whole time? No, no. It just, it, you know, just went through a bunch of people. You know, nobody, you know, nobody kind of wanted it. You know, when the land bus came, you know, the bank may have taken it back. All kinds of things may have happened, but nobody wanted it. And then finally it sold for $12.5 million. Wait a minute. Um, so nobody, wait a minute, I'm confused. The lot was for sale. Yeah. Nobody bought it. Well, somebody must have owned it over those last 92 years. Somebody must Yeah, but nobody it. wanted it. That's the thing. Oh, you know, got it, got it. At that time, you nobody, know, maybe the bank repossessed it. it. I right. mean, you think about all these places. There's a town in East Orange County called Bithlow. Sure. I don't yeah. know if you've ever heard of it. Mm-hmm. But originally, that was going to be the Paris of Florida. It was going to be this huge. No, I'm serious. Wait, ha- haven't if you, you been there? It's pretty close. Yeah, if you go back off the highway, there's still paved roads that they put in 100 years ago. There were these places all over Florida that were going to be, you know, big cities. And nothing ever came of them. Uh, And so, um, you know, uh, well, in Lake County, Howie in the Hills. Yeah. Remember Howie was going to be this... He ran for governor, almost won, in fact, in 1928. Uh, and he was going to, you know, be this huge developer, and he went bankrupt. You know, um, uh, I guess the mansion's still there. I don't know if anybody – there's a good example, the Howie Mansion. How long has that been empty? 
It's a it's a like a wedding venue now. Yeah. Right, but it was empty for a very 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 long time. Yeah, nobody nobody you think certainly somebody wants this beautiful mansion. <laughs> um but there were places all over Florida that you know just kind of sat there for decades that nobody saw the value in. Just amazing. Flagler County is another one. Uh nobody could see the growth coming to Flagler County. And so oceanfront property, I wish I'd bought some, was going for a song 30 years ago. So don't bet against Florida. Well, I'm, I don't have to say, we're, we're going to have to have you back on and really dive into some of these these uh, subjects that we've just kind of breezed over. and Because there's, right, there's well, thank so you. much more to Florida history than meets the eye. We've only begin, begun to scratch the surface. Uh, but Dr. Clark, I, I really appreciate you joining us this week, and uh, it's been a great episode. I really enjoyed it. Learned uh, more great. than ever. I'm honored to to have been asked, and thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Have a good evening. Good evening. <laughs>